Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In certain portions of scripture, such as the prologue of John or the book of Acts, there is a focus on the Son, there's a focus on the Father, but very often there is a lack of focus on the Holy Spirit. And this is true even in the creeds, even in the Orthodox creeds. There is a kind of linear description of the unfolding of the work of the Trinity that perhaps indirectly results in subordination of the work of the Spirit. You know, in John, if you look at the beginning there, the focus is on the Logos of God, on the Father and the Son. And the Spirit, later in the book, is portrayed more as a consequence. And the Council of Nicaea was focused on the equality of the Son with the Father and creedal clarification of the role of the Spirit was subsequent to this primary concern. Now maybe there are several reasons at work in muting the primary concern of the Spirit. Paul describes, certainly in the book of Romans, the primacy, and we're going to look at that, of the Holy Spirit. But he also records the difficulty in the church light at Corinth when the immature are carried away with their erotic and emotional excesses in an unbalanced view of the Holy Spirit. And the early heresy of Montanism records a similar emphasis and similar excesses. And so the early church found this peculiarly dangerous. But nonetheless, in Scripture, and particularly the Scripture we're going to look at today, and in church history, the Holy Spirit is accorded full divinity as one of the persons of the Trinity. But in every instance, both in Scripture and in church history, this giving full place to the Spirit is developed in an unabashed conjoining with the erotic, the sexual, and the experiential. That is, to understand the equality of the persons of the Trinity, what scriptural and historic precedent calls for is not, you know, esoteric abstractions describing three and one, but a turn to human experience at its most personal. The tendency, you know, may be, oh, well, we'll separate out the high and mighty things of God and the base things of man, in quotations there. But the biblical and historical precedent indicates, for example, that human sexuality is not an obstacle, but a means of contemplating God. Implicit is the assumption that human experience, the experience of desire, the experience of prayer, the experience that we have of the world, the experience that we have of ourselves, are all part and parcel of a right understanding of God. 
and stated in this way, I think it's hard to imagine that it could be otherwise. How do we understand God apart from our understanding of other things? To imagine, and I know modern people do this, that all through language or abstractions that we can get beyond embodied experience and that right understanding can be based on what we don't know or not knowable experience, that's precisely the fallacy that is refuted by giving primacy to the Spirit. That is the key role of the Holy Spirit. The experience of life in God is the experience of the Spirit. And so that's what Paul is describing throughout chapter 8 of Romans. Christian's experience of God is depicted as mediated through the Holy Spirit. And the realization that we are children of God, the experience of prayer, the experience of walking as Christ walked, as he describes it, the realization of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. These are experiences of God given to us in the Holy Spirit. And so look at Romans 8, verses 3 to 6. It describes the work of Christ, that it culminates in the work of the Spirit. He, Christ, condemns sin in the flesh. Why? So that the requirement of the law would be fulfilled, that we would not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. And so here is, why did Christ come? In order that we might experience the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit indwelling us. And Romans 8 is one of the clearest depictions of this work of the Trinity, you know, focusing though on the incorporating work of the Spirit, drawing all creation into the life of the Son, bearing witness, as Paul says, with our spirit in verse 15 to 16, that we're the children of God. There's a merging of God's Spirit and our spirit. And if we use this passage as a guide, the work of the Spirit, I think, is given its immediacy, not just in, you know, bringing to mind the revelation of Christ, that may be part of the work of the Spirit, is part of the work of the Spirit, but what chapter 8 is describing, that the Spirit brings about conformity to the very substance of life in Christ. So do you have the Spirit? Well, of course you have the Spirit in being conformed to Christ. And this is Paul's continual refrain in the opening of chapter 8, is that embodied realization of the work of the Spirit, it gives us a different human experience, a different unified experience, as opposed to a kind of fractured experience. And so in chapter 7, he describes the impossibility of even coming to self-identity, to what we call ipseity, of being at one with the self. 
The mind and the will are disengaged from one another. I do what I don't want to do. And the body and the ego then, actually the mind, body, and ego produce three levels of discordant experience. I experience one thing with my mind, I experience another thing with my body, and I'm torn between these two things. But in chapter 8, Paul is describing in the Holy Spirit that we're given a unified experience as we're incorporated into Christ. In verse 13 he says, If you are in the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You're acting differently. You're living differently. He describes incorporation into being children of God. That is, we realize, we feel, we actualize our fellowship with the Father. We cry out, Abba, Father. In verse 15 to 16, with the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And the priority here, logically and experientially speaking, is given to the Spirit. The Spirit is our entry point into experience of God. And so in verses 18 to 25, he describes a spiritual explanation of all of creation, of human suffering, but also creation's suffering. The creation is groaning in travail, and we too are groaning. The Spirit is catching up the whole created order, the whole created realm, into the life of God. And in verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers. Why? It's like childbirth, the pains of childbirth. The world and we ourselves are being given birth into this life of God. In 26 to 27, the role of the Spirit in prayer. Searching the mind, communing and communicating with God is depicted as through the Spirit. In verse 29, we are being conformed to the image of Christ through the power of the Spirit which sums up this all-inclusive work. Now at the opening of chapter 7, Paul had already outlined. He said, okay, here is the basic outline of what I'm going to do in 7 and 8. And he uses sex and marriage to describe both alienated and unified experience. And so in verse 1 to 6, he gives us a brief explanation. But then in the rest of 7 he describes alienated experience and in chapter 8 he describes unified experience. So you know look up at verse 1 to 6 he says you know there's a woman who might desire to consort with another man and the woman has an experience very much like Paul describes his own experience in the rest of chapter 7 that she split against herself on the one hand, if the woman's husband is alive and she consorts with another man, this pits her union with her lover against the reality of her living husband. Now, don't get confused here. Paul's not really just talking about adultery and sex and marriage. He's describing human experience and the way it works. 
And maybe Paul has in mind an experience, you know, in which true love, and that's in quotes, or the deepest part of the self, you know, it's always a kind of transgressive understanding. Isn't normal society, with its normal laws, a kind of externally imposed norm? I'm talking like the devil here. And how can I find myself, how can I recognize myself in these objectified norms? Isn't my experience of myself more immediate? And doesn't the standard of the law threaten to interfere with who I am in my immediacy? You know, this is Woody Allen. He married his own daughter, his adopted daughter. And when the reporters asked him, why did you do this? He said, well, the heart just wants what the heart wants. And even being an exception, you know, it's outside the norms. But isn't that a kind of authentication of my experience? The law or social norms, they can't account for true love, right? Or the deepest part of myself? And aren't these realms, you know, my deep love, deep uh, understanding of myself, isn't this outside of the law, outside of social norms? I just described sin to you, if you missed the point. So if, if you've been convinced by that part of the sermon, you went the wrong way. <laughs> this perverse notion of exception, the temptation to transgress, to obtain what lies behind or you know, beyond the obstacle of the law, that's definitive of sin. You know, in the case of Adam and Eve in the garden, this was the lie of the serpent. Oh, true knowledge, true understanding is in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, God has lied to you. And if you obey the law, you're going to miss out on this rich experience of true knowing. In the case of the woman who would consort with another man, true love is outside of marriage, not in marriage. Throughout the chapter, you know, Paul is playing off the experience of Adam and Eve in their temptation. And it's the prototypical sin that he's describing. To go beyond the law in order to obtain what the obstacle of the law seems to create. Oh, true knowledge, it's outside of God's prohibition. True love, I have to get outside of the normal standards of marriage. The authentic self is on the other side of the law. And in the lie of the serpent, God seems to be tricking Adam and Eve. He seems to be tricking us by luring away from true knowledge with his prohibition. Isn't that what the law does? And Paul's description of sin is this transgressive allure which constitutes fallen desire. And the point of Christianity is to break free from this thing that gets a grip on us. This kind of obscene notion of God, the obscene notion of a perverse law. Oh, God's holding out on us. And this is not accomplished 
by thwarting desire, but by reordering desire. And we talked about that last week. Not by suspending desire per se, but suspending the perverting effect of the law. That is, the problem's not with the law, the problem is with our perverse orientation to the law. In chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says, one must die to the law. And this is accomplished, he's still using the marriage and sex metaphor. It's like a sexual incorporation, but it's beyond gender and sex. You also died to the law, verse 4, through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. He's still using marriage, but now he's in some way going beyond that metaphor. The sexual metaphor now depicts consummation of desire through the union with Christ, giving rise to conception. He says you're going to bear fruit. And in chapter 8, he's going to actually use childbirth. You're going to, he, he uses it here in 7, but he's going to describe a woman in labor. Giving birth is the fruit for God of a new sort of offspring. New humanity created in Christ. So even though desire is depicted in chapter 7, it's at the root of sin. In chapter 8, Paul continues to deploy the language of desire. That is, you don't get rid of it, you redirect it, you rechannel it, you reorient it. Look at verse 5. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Those who live in the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. So still desire but it's a spiritual desire. In verse 23, he talks about conception. That is, it's the same metaphor, marriage, conception, birth. But he says, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. And then in verse 22, birth. In other words, it's you get married, you conceive, you give birth. Same metaphor, but now we're talking about everything. That groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, describes our experience, but the experience of creation. And all of this, in verse 15, is described as being incorporated into the family of God. You've re received the spirit of adoption. And this is the work of the Spirit. And so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who incorporates us into the family of the Father who engenders life in the Son, who draws into the realization of life and peace. Where you have life and peace, you're experiencing the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is not a consequence, but the experiential reality of God blended with our spirit. That's verse 16. The Spirit is simultaneous in our experience with the Son and the Father. And that's the problem that if we depict a kind of unfolding of the Trinity, we're going to miss this. In verse 15, you received the Spirit. The Spirit brought about your adoption. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. We realize God's fatherhood and our brotherhood with Christ 
through the Spirit simultaneously. And this simultaneity, that's the basis in which we recognize the equality of the persons of the Trinity. And this unified experience stands in contrast to the split experience, you know, of chapter 7, this body of death that Paul calls it. You know, we might, in, in the sin, I think, I, the law of my mind, but it's never joined with the one thinking, the law of the body. But in chapter 8, the will of God is in the immediate experience of the Spirit, testifying with our experience. It's no longer the mediating law. That's the problem with the law as it stands outside of us. That was the promise in the Old Testament is that the law needs to be inscribed on your heart. I think that's what we're, we're seeing take place here. And Paul's going to use that language. This spirit draws together what was formerly held apart in the law of the mind. You know, this objectified law of the mind, it didn't apply to the heart. The law of the body was following a different law. And this is the experience of death. You've got a person going in three directions all at once. And in place of these three discrete realms of experience, you know, the law of the mind, law of the body, the experience, the body of death, Paul describes the Trinity as bringing about a unified experience. Maybe that's just a way of saying things are going to make sense. They're going to be unified. The spirit unifies desire of the mind and the law of God. What pleases God? While the alienate experience, you know, Paul says that you're hostile to God in your mind and you can't be otherwise. And creating the respective experiences. You know, he, he describes spirit experience, life, peace. And the flesh experience, death. And understand what he means by death is not at the end of your life, you die. What he means by death is this experience of, I'm going every which way, and I don't know what in the world I'm doing. And so life in the Spirit is immediately life and peace. And by the same token, life in the flesh, it's immediately death in Romans 5 to 8, 8, 5 to 8. And so just as death is this direct thing, I think in the same way, life and peace. This is the Abba, presence of God in our lives. So Paul's is a prayer-based, embodied, experiential logic. Now I didn't say experientialism, but I'm not leaving experience out of it. And Paul's not leaving it out. It is the experiential realization of the incorporating power of the Spirit. And so Paul slides, you know, between, he'll talk about God, Christ, and Spirit, all in one sentence here in chapter 8. In 8, 9 to 11, you know, he's straining to express what may be inexpressible. He says this is beyond words in a sentence. And the total perception of God, it is this trifaceted, but singular experience. The Father is both source and ultimate object of divine desire. The Spirit is the enabler, the incorporator of that desire in creation, that which makes the creation divine. And the Son is that divine and perfected creation. 
And so Paul's description of this unified experience, it fills, you know, chapter 7, we got three empty places that make up the human self, the discorded spaces of the self. The law of the mind is now occupied by the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? Oh, we know the will of the Father and the Son. Jesus is the will of the Father. But now the will of the Father in the Son takes place in your own mind through the Spirit. You are conformed to that image. The alienated body is displaced by the body of Christ. You know, chapter 7, my body's doing one thing and my mind is doing another. But now in the body of Christ, that fits together with my mind. The cry of death, you know, who will rescue me from this body of death in chapter 7? Here's the answer, the body of Christ. This cry, who will rescue me? I think there's another cry in chapter 8. We cry with the deep groanings of the Spirit, Abba, Father. And we might say Christ is the will of the Father, which the Spirit brings about in our lives. The Son is the will of the Father, embodied, and the Spirit enables us to embody that will in ourselves. We do it. I'm not saying anything strange here, but it may sound strange because we don't talk this way. But this was the way the early church thought of the Trinity. And there was this focus on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that we seem to have lost. Irenaeus says these things, therefore he recapitulated in himself. This doctrine of recapitulation, that is, he's doing it again. He created in Adam, and now he's recreating in Christ. By uniting man to the Spirit, quoting Irenaeus, and causing the Spirit to dwell in man, he is himself made the head of the spirit and gives the spirit to be the head of man for through him we see and hear and speak where do we encounter God in seeing hearing speaking and in the experiential reality of being in Christ Augustine also and I'm quoting you know Augustine is of the West but he also gets this he says, therefore, the Holy Spirit of whom he has given us makes us to abide in God and him in us. And this it is that love does. Therefore, he is the God that is love. Lastly, a little later, I'm still quoting Augustine. When he had repeated the same thing, he said, God is love. He who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Whence he had said above, hereby we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The love of God is the spirit of God. And note throughout chapter 8, I want, uh, this, this is the wrong place to bring in a dark note. But we need to, in other words, this, this has been pretty happy and positive and joyous. But it's not all triumphalism. Chapter 8 assures us that we are a part of Christ only if we suffer with him. And the nature of this suffering, this deep groaning of all creation, it describes a depth of suffering on the order of childbirth. 
One of the early church fathers, Diaticus, for whom regeneration of the spirit, he says it's central. But he says he also speaks of God receding at times. Maybe to educate us, to humble the soul's tendency to vanity and glory, to feeling ourselves abandoned. Maybe that's part of the groaning. We become humble and we submit to God. St. John of the Cross talks about the dark night of the soul, the night of sense where prayer seems to lose all of its former sweetness. But then he describes something even worse in which trials and disorientations of this night of the spirit, but actually it may be the period in which God is drawing so near to us, so painfully and purgatively close that the experience, he says, is akin to that of a log being thrown into a devouring fire. Our God is a consuming fire. We can gain warmth from that fire, but we can also be changed and purified. And so the Spirit joins us to the passion of Christ, which is connected with the progressive breaking of sinful desire. That is, there is a taking up of the erotic in our being drawn to God, but there is also a chastening through the Spirit of the Son, the chastening of human lust to possess, to abuse, to control. And the Spirit's activity in the world, because it's always connected with the other persons, has the capacity, it does two things. It draws humans together in union, but it also subtly guards our integrity. The spirit's a dangerous thing because it unleashes the desire that may go wrong, but it's also a protective element. There's also the same spirit, Paul says in 5.5, that inflames the heart with love, also imparts the gift of self-control. In Galatians, you know, what are the gifts of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. And so the spirit is this constant overflow of the life of God into creation. Alluring, delighting, inflaming. It is the propulsion of divine desire, but the spirit is no less also a means of discernment and control. Let me package this whole thing in one little idea here. By focusing on the spirit and the role of the spirit in the Trinity, Paul is describing God's selfhood, God's ipsaity, in which God's Trinitarian selfhood enables human selfhood. We are who we are because we participate in who God is. This prayer-based self-identity, ipsity, of the Spirit with the Son and the Father. You know, he's describing the Trinity, but then we enter into this prayerful, through prayer we enter into the Trinity. So let me conclude, verse 26 to 27. The Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts 
knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.